0: This morning marks a pretty big milestone uh, for our community. Um, for some of you who are aware, um, last year, uh, on top of everything that this world was going through, uh, two of our pastors resigned unexpectedly and left the community. And so, you know, we were in a really heavy season of loss, uh grief, you know, confusion, uncertainty, all the feelings. Uh, as we were trying to navigate that transition uh, as a community. And so I just want to name that because I know there's some in our community who are still processing those staff transitions, um, and we want to continue to offer space and support uh, as we continue to navigate through that. Um, And at the same time, in the midst of that, uh, I'm extremely grateful for our leadership team, our staff, um, that has really navigated this community through the last year and a half, Um, and also for our search committee, uh, who... Uh, has been looking for someone to join our pastoral team in this next season of Vox. And so this team has put in countless hours um, just going through applications and doing screening interviews, doing follow-up interviews. And so um, it's been just an extreme joy working with this team. I've enjoyed it a lot. Um, and just for them to have just such intention and thoughtfulness and care uh, and hope Uh, on behalf of our community as they've gone through this process. So I just really want to thank the team. It's Katie Garcia, Nick Acosta, uh, Kelly Knight, Amy Wolfgang, and Parker Short. Can we thank them real quick? Uh, They've done an amazing job. And so, you know, when we first started this process, this search process, um... We were also considering what it might look like for us to move towards a more flatter leadership structure. So instead of having a lead pastor model, um, our navigation team discerned that maybe a pastoral team model was more sustainable uh, and was actually more reflective of who we are already and what we want to lean into more, Uh, especially as we try to combat the whole celebrity culture that's really been embedded in our Western evangelical churches. And so just trying to move away from that model and so last uh, just this past summer, uh, our Covenant members voted uh, to update our bylaws and adopt this pastoral team model. And so that really began to inform who we were going to look for to join this team, um, someone who really embraced shared leadership uh, and pastoral care, uh, just to walk with and, and, and be with our community. And so this past month, um, our search committee and our navigation team uh, discerned a candidate to bring in, uh, Christopher Mack. And um, he would be joining our team as a, pastoral, a pastor of community and teaching, uh, which are both gifts and passions for him. Um, we'll welcome Christopher, and uh, we invite you to open the scriptures with us.
1: Well, I would like to give you a chance to reflect with me at the beginning of this. So I think my first question, let me make sure I have it as written here. Yeah, what was one of your more memorable costumes from your youth and what made it so? So I want you to take some time, think about that. What was a memorable costume from your youth? If you're in your youth, then it makes it a lot easier. It might be like the costume you're wearing right now. Uh, But what was one of those costumes and what made it so? And if you feel comfortable, turn to a neighbor, share that with them. All right, let's see. I would love to hear some of your responses, if you wouldn't mind sharing. So what was a memorable costume from your youth? He-Man. He-Man, master of the universe, by the power of Grisco. That's some 80s resonance happening right here. Uh, I I can't pretend pretend that I'm going to do that for everyone. What was it? Chewbacca. Chewbacca? I I was about to try a Chewbacca roar. That's not in me for today. Uh, But thank you. That's incredible. Yeah. Right on. Do I see a hand over? Say that again. A robot. Robot. Nice. Yeah. Love the robot. Any other responses? Dracula. Fa- Dracula. Yes. Yes. Most definitely. Very classic Halloween or whatever that was that you're utilizing that for. Beautiful. Uh <laughs> yes. Beautiful. So, Kublai Khan—the first time you had to do some research and really found this Asian hero very meaningful for you. Definitely, that's awesome. Thanks for sharing. Any others? I had a friend dressed up as a raisin. Okay. Was this during the height of the California raisins? Okay. I, I can picture it. I'm not sure I'll ever be able to unpicture it, but thank you. Um, Well, thanks for taking some time to share and think about some of those uh, costumes for me when I can remember for me the most exciting Halloween that I had Uh, was the year that I chose to dress up as a Ghostbuster. And the reason, like, that's cool is, A, there's lots of 80s stuff happening there, right? Like, the Ghostbusters were the thing. Stranger Things season two, perhaps the only bright point, as far as I'm concerned, was the conversation they had about the Ghostbusters uh, during that. But, but it's also really cool because, like, everyone else, whether they want to or not, are playing along with you when you're going trick-or-treating, right? Because you're the Ghostbuster, and you've got Dracula, you've got robots, you've got all the kinds of things that are out there, zombies, et cetera, that you're able to just, like, yeah, I got you! Yes, you over there! Which, I don't know what that says about me, that, like, I'm the one who wants to, like, capture or contain what everybody else is doing as they're expressing, expressing their costumes, but that was definitely for me the most like, because I didn't even think about that aspect of it. And then it was like, as I was like zipping up, I mean, I was like, I don't even know, probably like five years old. And like, I'm zipping up this little jumpsuit that my parents bought me probably at Toys R Us or something. And I'm getting ready to go. And then all of a sudden it dawns and me like, whoa, everybody's in on this and they don't even know it. And it was just this like incredible joy that came over me. I think the last thing that I sort of dressed up as, this was uh, in 2019. It really was just a mask that I got from Target, was as the Miles Morales Spider-Man. And again, it's like I'm wearing this mask that I think it was made for like a preteen or something. So it doesn't even really like cover all of my face and just have the Spider-Man t-shirt. But I'm with someone from uh, my church who when I met this person Was like seemingly the most reserved, like kind of wallflower, uh, not at all engaged with things. Wasn't even sure this person was ever going to come back to church. And so when this person showed up at Halloween in the Deadpool outfit, just like full on, like, you know, I'm Deadpool and was just in that character. I was like, I am seeing a whole other side of who you are right now. Like I would have never, ever guessed that this was inside of you. I think that's one of the gifts sometimes when we are able to dress up, is that sometimes we're able to lean into, to live into parts of ourselves, to express who we are in ways that perhaps others have not anticipated, that they did not see. Perhaps even that we're just exploring for the first time ourselves. Costumes can give us that opportunity. Sometimes costumes might be a reflection of the things that haunt us, that terrorize us, that have traumatized us. It may be the thing that you were scared of as a kid and so you're thinking, this is going to be the thing. If I could just recapture the thing that woke me up in the middle of the night and sent me to my parents' room, then, then that's going to be the thing that's going to terrify other people. Costumes have all kinds of different significance for us. And I thought particularly as we enter... Uh, This season of reflecting on death, and as we are in this season, this holiday that I recently learned, other than Christmas, Americans spend more money on Halloween than any other holiday, so apparently we're all really into it, Uh, to really consider what are the costumes that we've enjoyed putting on, what are the ones that have felt like they are life-giving for us, and what are the ones that maybe reflect some of the challenge, the trauma, the fear, the anxiety, of our life, and of our mortality. Our passage today uh, begins with Ruth. And it is this story that though the book itself is about Ruth, most people have made the comment and understanding it's really about this woman, Naomi. She is this woman who is from Bethlehem. It is the house of bread. It is this place that is supposed to be abundant food. And yet, She's leaving because it's a famine, and so she and her family make the incredibly hard decision to leave all that they've known, all of their loved ones, all that is familiar, and go into a foreign land, and not just any foreign land, but a land where there was deep-seated animosity and hatred. There was lots of misunderstanding between the Moabites and the Israelites, and yet they are desperate, and so they are fleeing Bethlehem, this formerly known as the house of bread, in search for their daily bread. And they get there, and the situation initially maybe seems to be having some positive sense. Uh, Naomi's da- sons marry uh, some daughters. And it's not some daughters. They <laughs> marry, marry, uh, marry these women who are Moabites. We get their names. That's Ruth. And Orpa, and it seems like perhaps the situation is going to turn in a positive favor for Naomi, and yet her terror continues. In ten short years. Uh, no children are born, no grandchildren for Naomi. And that's not just like our present day, if you have people or if you are the person asking people, when are we going to have grandchildren? Right In this society, uh, children meant a further sustenance of life, f- particularly in this culture. If you were to have sons, this meant a way to make sure that there was provision for you going on into the future. And for 10 long years, neither of these families of Naomi have any grandchildren for her. And then her husband dies. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, which seems like a really, like, that's a forward, okay, you're clear, or at least your parents were very clear on where you stand. God is my king, but God is my king dies in Moab. Moab. And then Malon and Kilion, which I just have to believe can't actually be their names. This has to be some uh, placeholder, because though we're not exactly sure in Hebrew what their names mean, roughly, it means sickness and annihilation, right? You can't imagine on, like, the day they're born, you know, kind of the, like Lion King moment, circle of life, and they're like, sickness! You know, that just doesn't seem like anything someone... Would do because names have meaning. They have purpose. They have value. They have intention, and yet there is this fissure. I wanted to share with you uh, some friends of mine recently uh, just had their second child, and they named their child Juniper. And on the day they were able to meet their child, they wrote this reflection: Juniper. A non-gendered name originates from the Latin junus, meaning young or youthful, and perere, meaning to grow or produce. The conjunction as a name connoting youth producing or evergreen. The western juniper grows in desert scrubland, often the most pronounced vegetation in a desert landscape because of its ability to find water. From a culinary perspective, the juniper berry is bitter and potent, but if employed skillfully, it provides an explosion of bright flavor and needed balance to sour and sweet. Juniper thrives in the Oregon high desert that we so love, where the mountains and sun and aridity collide. Juniper is beautiful, though her beauty is in her own non-traditional way. She's scrappy and very resourceful, flourishing where few others can. Juniper symbolizes a severe stubbornness and creativity. She sees the possibility that that others overlook or deem worthless or hostile the desert. Yet she goes there anyway. She learns to be an artist in that overlooked space. Juniper has a spirit of perseverance. She withstands seasons of drought, high winds, threats of fire, and frigid winter. She knows she can endure through hardship. Juniper is rooted in the earth. She knows freedom because she knows the limitations of the earth and the place she occupies within it. She is not unfazed or infected by hardship. Rather, her shape is literally twisted by that hardship. It's what makes her who she is, and she welcomes it. My friends sent me that about why they decided to name their newborn child Juniper, and I was just floored. We know that names can hold all kinds of meaning and richness and blessing. But if these really are Malon and Killian's names, then they also carry lots of anxiety and trauma and fear and scarcity. To name a child sickness or devastation or annihilation is not seemingly to set them on a course of flourishing in their lives. And so Naomi is in this place where her husband has died, her sons have died, and they have had no heirs, no males who can take care of their family going forward, which puts Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah in a place of extreme vulnerability in this culture. How will they make their way forward? Well, Ruth hears that the house of bread that has been without bread now has bread again. And so she decides, perhaps it is time for me to make the long journey back home. And initially, her daughter-in-laws, Orpah and Ruth, decide to go with her until Naomi says, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Do I still have sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? In other words, she's saying to them, there's no future with me. If you come with me, we're already people in a desperate situation that is only going to be more desperate because of our number. Instead, why don't you stay here? Perhaps you can still remarry. Perhaps you can find a way in your home country to make it. And Orpa decides to do just that. I'm grateful for Kat Armas in her book, Abuelita Faith, that Redeems Orpah by saying, many of us look at her as, oh, she's the one that didn't have the faith. Like, you want to be the Ruth who decides to go with Naomi and gets to be in the lineage of King David and eventually of King Jesus? That's the one. But Kat Armas rightly reminds us that Orpah was making a decision not to assimilate. Not to go to a culture that would consume her own, but instead to stand in her own truth, to make a way where there seemed to be no way in her present context, and that both take tremendous strength and faith. And so Orpah decides to go and stay in Moab, and interestingly goes back to her mother's household, There's this interesting matriarchy that is taking place uh, in these Moabite households there. And so Orpah goes, and we don't hear from her again. But Ruth declares that, no, she is going to stay. She says, do not press me to leave you or turn back from following you. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She makes this radical declaration of commitment to Naomi in the verse before that it says that Ruth clings to her this is the same word that talks about in Genesis when a husband leaves his household and clings to his wife it is a word that talks about deep intimate covenantal commitment between two people and this is Ruth's expression For Naomi. In the musical, Wicked, (laughs) in the seminal song, Defying Gravity, we have Afelba and Galinda, which will later become Glinda, who are at this crucial. Point. They have both wanted to work for the Wizard of Oz. They both see this as the way to success and to fame and to notoriety and to power. But now something has been revealed about the Wizard of Oz, which is incredibly suspect. And it doesn't sit right with Ophelba. She doesn't want to participate in this. And so the, her very dream seems to become tumbling down. And Galinda is trying to tell, don't worry about it. This is not a big deal. If, if you just stay quiet, keep your head down, work really hard for like 10 more years, you're going to have a great pension, a great retirement. You know, this is going to be wonderful. And Elba just cannot be right with this in her own heart. And so she says, and I, I am making the decision. I'm going I'm to read these words. But in future times, there will be singing. Uh, she says, something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep. It's time to trust my instincts, to close my eyes and leap. She says, too long I've been afraid of losing love. I guess I've lost. Well, if that's love, it comes at much too high a cost. I'd sooner buy defying gravity. These women at a crossroads, and Ephelba says, "I I know I must go in this direction, and Galinda, you must go in this direction. And yet in this song, in this particular moment, they find a way, though they know that they are at cross purposes of blessing one another, of remaining in friendship, even though they are going in radically different directions with their life. Which leads us to our passage in Mark, where Jesus is talking with this religious leader. And unlike most of the other passages we have in Mark, when Jesus is talking with the religious leader, Jesus seems to be really vibing with this guy. He's like, you, you've, you've got something. You're understanding. This this religious leader isn't antagonistic. It's not an enemy. It's not like the Roadrunner and Wile e. Coyote sort of thing where you just know like, ah, oh, that Acme thing is going to reverse right on you. Just give it a second. They're having a genuine mutual conversation. And at the end of it, Jesus says that he answered wisely. You are not far from the kingdom of God. He's talking to this person who's on a journey and is not yet where Jesus is, but they've been able to see in one another the glimpse of the divine. And Jesus is able to bless where he is and to say, you are not far. Keep going in this direction. Bayard Rustin, a civil rights leader, Bayard Rustin, a civil rights leader uh, who is also sidelined and unknown to much of history because he was an openly gay man, uh, writes about or talks about in one of his interviews why he came out as early as he did. And he said, I was sitting on a bus and... I could tell, talking about his race, not his sexual identity, that there was this white child that was seeing me be told to go to the back of the bus. And if this child grew up in the South for all of their life, they were just going to think that that was okay, that I even perhaps enjoyed being there as a black man being going to the back of this bus. And he said, I started to think about that not just about my race, but about my sexual identity, and I knew that I had to come out. I knew that I had to share this. In one of his writings, he says this, if I sit in the back of the bus, I am depriving that child of the knowledge that there is injustice here, which I believe it is his right to know. It is my sincere conviction that the power of love in the world is the greatest power existing. If you have a greater power, my friend, you may move me. Bayard Rustin believed in the power of love. Jesus talks about God's reign of love, this kingdom of God, and the answer of where we find it that is not far from us, it's not far because it's as close as the person next to you. That when we can enter into this fragile space where None of us have to have all of the answers. Perhaps we can bring our own anxieties and questions and vulnerabilities. We can trust that when we meet on these frontiers that are beyond any of our comfort zones and safety and ways of knowing that when we too are out in the wilderness, it is there we can not only be open to receiving God's love, but to giving and channeling God's love in unique and creative ways. We are able to experience God's reign of love even if it feels Far off, even if the person who is in front of us seems like someone who would be incredibly challenging to love, even if this group of people are people we would rather write off. We don't put our safety in, in jeopardy. We continue to side with the marginalized and the oppressed, but we also seek to say, what does love do to envelop this equation? How? Are we invited in to go from seeing one another perhaps as monsters and ghouls like perhaps my young Ghostbuster self did and begin to take off and allow to fall off all the ways we have masked as evil those in our life so that we too can see and celebrate the image of God? Would you pray with me? God, we thank you that you invite us to be known and to know. That though at times your reign of love may feel far off, it's actually as near as the next person we encounter. May the scales fall off of our eyes. May the ways we have dressed people and whole groups as wicked evil things fall away. May we be able to see with your womb-like mother compassion for all people and to share your love. In the name of the creator and the redeemer and the sustainer, we pray. Amen.